Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the shocking revelations from a former CIA operations officer that explain why U.S. intelligence missed Vladimir Putin, and because of betrayals by KGB spies in the CIA and FBI, had no assets left in Russia to grasp the takeover of the country by the Siloviki, the men of force in Russia's intelligence services, who now run the country openly, having previously operated from behind the scenes. Joining us is Robert Baer, one of the most accomplished officers in CIA history and a best-selling author who over several decades served everywhere from Iraq to New Delhi and was awarded the Career Intelligence Medal for his efforts. Bear is the author of four New York Times bestsellers, including his first book, See No Evil, the basis of the Academy Award-winning film Syriana. He is considered one of the world's foremost authorities on the Middle East and is an intelligence and national security affairs analyst for CNN. And his latest book just out is The Fourth Man, The Hunt for a KGB Spy at the Top of the CIA and the rise of Putin's Russia. Then, with oil prices having risen by a third in the first two weeks after Russia's invasion of Ukraine and continue to rise as our so-called allies, the leaders of Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, MBS and MBZ, collude with Putin to turn American voters against Biden to bring back their criminal cohort Donald Trump, we will investigate the complex intersections of oil, money and democracy, since energy and finance are at the heart of geopolitics. Joining us is Helen Thompson, Professor of Political Economy at Cambridge University, whose research concentrates on the political economy of energy and the long history of the democratic, economic and geopolitical disruptions of the 21st century. She's the author of a number of books, including Oil and the Western Economic Crisis, China and the Mortgaging of America, and Might, Right, Prosperity and Consent, Representative Democracy and the International Economy. She is a regular contributor to the podcast Talking Politics and has written articles for the London Review of Books, the New York Times and the Financial Times, and we will discuss her latest book, Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Robert Baer, one of the most accomplished officers in CIA history and the best-selling author who, over several decades, served everywhere from Iraq to New Delhi and was awarded the Career Intelligence Medal for his efforts. Bear is the author of four New York Times bestsellers, including his first book, See No Evil, the basis of the Academy Award-winning film Syriana. He is considered one of the world's foremost authorities on the Middle East and is an intelligence and national security affairs analyst for CNN. And his latest book just out is The Fourth Man, The Hunt for a KGB Spy at the Top of the CIA and the Rise of Putin's Russia. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Bear. Thanks, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And on December the 20th of 1999, Vladimir Putin addressed senior officials of Russia's Federal Security Service, the FSB, at the Lubyanka headquarters near uh, Moscow's Red Square. He was the recently appointed 47-year-old prime minister who had held the rank of lieutenant colonel in the FSB and was visiting to mark the holiday honoring the Russian security services where he said to the audience of Russian intelligence officers, quote, the task of infiltrating the highest level of government is accomplished, Putin joked. And as Nina Khrushcheva, Khrushchev's granddaughter, points out in her article at Foreign Affairs, the joke was on Russia because within two weeks, uh, Putin became president of Russia and has been in that position in charge of Russia for, what, the last 22, 23 years. Well, she's right. I mean, you, you have to look at what happened is that in 1991, the Soviet Union collapses. 
the KGB, uh, both reserve officers and active, sort of disappear into the shadows. Um, and they set about infiltrating the government. Putin infiltrated the mayor's office in St. Petersburg. He then infiltrated the property office in the Kremlin and positioned himself to take over. He, he everything I've heard, he had backing from hardliners in the KGB called status who were just waiting for their time. And I think what they did was they caught Yeltsin, his family taking bribes, and they told him that if he didn't want to go to jail, he could uh, just turn the government over to the KGB, which was Putin. And I think we have to look at Putin as a front man for, for hardliners. I mean, eventually he came into his own, and I think there's no doubt about it. He controls Russia with a with an iron fist, but that that took him twenty years. But your new book reveals these shocking revelations that explain why the U.S. intelligence services missed Vladimir Putin, and because of betrayals by KGB spies in the CIA and the and the FBI. And the fact of the matter is that the U.S. had no assets left in Russia to grasp the takeover of the country by the Siloviki, the so-called men of force in the Russian intelligence services. Now, the Siloviki, led by Putin, they run the country openly now, having previously operated from behind the scenes. It's a security state. And you're absolutely right. It was missed by American intelligence because you had Hansen and the FBI gave up all FBI sources and many CIA sources. You had Ames, Rick Ames, the notorious mole, inside the CIA. You had Howard was another one. And then you had the fourth man. And as the ambassador to Moscow in 1999 told me, is that he got better information from uh, Moscow taxi drivers than he did the CIA or U.S. intelligence. And that's just a damning statement. And he, he didn't say that lightly. So we were completely blind in 99 about this, this takeover. And there's been a lot out there. Masha Gessen is, you know, covers it. Khrushcheva covers it. And everybody sort of recognizes it. But, it, but Putin uh, was in a position to guarantee us that we were completely blinded to his takeover. So let's start then with this complicated story. In the late 1980s, a Russian intelligence officer named Alexander Zaporizhsky, who uh, was nicknamed Max, became... He, did he defect? He stayed in place, didn't he? And, but he provided the CIA with an extraordinary amount of information, which led them to both Aldrich Ames and then later to Robert Hansen. Yes. In 1988, he started meeting with the CIA in East Africa. And he came around to saying, hey, you guys are infiltrated by moles, by the KGB is running sources of American intelligence. He said there's one in the FBI and there's one in the CIA. Uh, you know, no one much paid attention to him at the time because it was a casual contact and they didn't know what to do with it. Then, But then came 1993 and they decided there was a mole in the CIA and the FBI pushed the CIA to get back in touch with him. Coincidentally, he was invited to the United States as part of a liaison visit and then dropped it onto his handler, the guy that he, his friend, that Ames... Uh, well, he didn't know Ames's name, but uh, the CIA mole was going to meet his handler in Caracas. The FBI pieced it together. It led to uh, warrants on Ames breaking, you know, breaking into his house, his trash, and then he was arrested by the FBI in 1994. And then the CIA and the FBI sat down and said, "All right, here's everything that Ames has gave up." And they made a list. You know, it was a lot. And then they said, "No, wait a minute. There's all these other compromises." of secrets that Ames didn't know. So they concluded in November 1994 that there was another mole. And since then, there has been a hunt for him, which is ongoing as we speak. And again, I'm speaking with Robert Baer, one of the most accomplished officers in CIA history and the best-selling author, 
who over several decades served everywhere from Iraq to New Delhi and was awarded the Career Intelligence Medal for his efforts. He's the author of four New York Times bestsellers, including his first book, See No Evil, the basis of the Academy Award-winning film Syriana, and he's considered one of the world's foremost authorities on the Middle East and is an intelligence and national security affairs analyst for CNN, and his latest book just out is The Fourth Man, The Hunt for a KGB Spy at the Top of the CIA and the Rise of Putin's Russia. And... Then Max dropped, I'm talking about uh, Zaporeski, he dropped incredibly important clues, did he not? Where he said that this fourth man, this suspect, suspected mole, attended Directorate of Operation Division Chief's meetings and at some point had access to these three-by-five cards on which the Directorate of Operations kept their most highly sensitive uh, operations information. And then at about that same time... Bob, you you were with Bill, Bill Lofgren. Lofgren, Bill Lofgren, who was the director of operations, and you you were coming back with him from a meeting at the White House. You pulled into the parking lot at Langley, and he turned to you and looked up at the seventh floor and said, "There's a traitor up there." And the seventh floor, of course, being where the management are and that the director is. So that's pretty specific information, isn't it? It was very specific. Those three by five cards, which listed the Moscow sites, weren't kept for long. But somebody on the USSR branch, later Russia branch, said, hey, um, you know, Moscow knew about these cards. And the only way to know about them is to have somebody at Langley who told them. And there were multiple, multiple other indications. Max would eventually say, look, I told you there were two moles in the CIA. All right, you caught Ames, but there's one more. He didn't know the name of the other mole. And then it, it just, it, the, the, the evidence for his existence, Ian, was cumulative. And th- this is what's, what's difficult for people to understand. So it's not one day they discover him. It's just bits and pieces. And then Russian defectors start coming out of, of Moscow describing the mole's access. And one defector said inside the Russian intelligence, he's known as the best source the Russians and Soviets have ever had. That goes back to 1917. He basically was at the top of the CIA, had every State Department secret, most Pentagon secrets. He even had, um, was into White House communications on these so-called no-disc cables. What's important about that, you know, but what's important about that is that, I mean, Clinton and and Yeltsin had a good relationship until one day the KGB shows up with the American transcripts of those conversations and tells Yeltsin, be careful. There's nothing we don't know. It scared Yeltsin, terrified him. And the fourth man was clearly the source of that information, right? And Putin would have made that presentation, right? He was the head of the FSB, wasn't he? Yes. He, the, the fourth man was run by the FSB. He would have made that presentation um, to, to Yeltsin. And we can only guess what happened at that meeting. Um, this is, you know, more intelligence filtering out of Russia. And, and there's so much of it because he was handled in a way that there was, as we understand, no file on him. He was so sensitive that that all the information about him was written on what the Russians call the postcard without his name, without a picture. It was just his handlers who knew who he was. Uh, so there, there was no way for the FBI to make a case because they need a smoking gun. They need they need a, a drop, a dead drop. They need to see a meeting photograph, but they need to see money. Otherwise, you can't take it to a court. So the FBI is absolutely 100% convinced, I've been told this, that he existed and that he did untold damage, probably worse than Hanson, Ames, and Howard combined. And at the bottom line is he made sure, as as I just said, that we were absolutely blind to events in Russia. So just going back a couple of years from when Bill Lofgren, the director of operations, pointed to the seventh floor from the parking lot at Langley and told you that there was a traitor up there on the seventh floor. In June of 1994, 
Bill Lofkin's predecessor, Ted Price, the head of Director of Operations, he set up this special unit called the Special Investigative Unit to look for these spies, right? And the guy that headed it was Paul Redman, the Deputy Chief of the Counterintelligence Center. And he is the suspect, is he not? Uh, He is, as far as we can tell, the most likely person to be the fourth man. Well, they decided by November 1994 that the fourth man had to have served in at Langley from 84 to 94, that he'd been in in Russia operations and then in counterintelligence. That was the only position that would explain these compromises. And what they did was simply present uh, the SIU, Special Investigations Unit, presented their findings senior management um and in in redmond at the meeting and i've talked to him he said he doesn't remember this blew up and without a word kicked his chair back and left the room where the briefing was and everybody in lofgren remembers this till today said well i guess this meeting's over what happened then was that this look for the fourth man the, the investigators what they should have done was expanded the investigation. And the way you do that is you bring 10 FBI agents in, you, you get into, you know, metadata, you get into phone calls. You just expand the investigation once you've decided that there's a, a fourth man. But what happened instead was the counterintelligence and the CIA and the FBI just crushed it. Right. Crushed but, were, the in- but this meeting there that took place in November of 1994 is an extraordinary situation is it not where the members of the special investigative unit unit do a briefing to the top brass at the cia and there's their boss paul redmond sitting there and they turn around and say the most likely candidate as the fourth man is paul redmond no wonder he stormed well, they know well yeah they didn't they didn't they didn't name him but the only senior officer that fit that description was paul redmond but what they did, the, the spy catchers just said, hey, here's what the evidence says. And the FBI would later ask them, well, wouldn't the normal reaction of, of Redmond be to say, let's let's widen this investigation, not not close it down? Um, so what, what, what we're dealing with here is a lot of deduction right. of who else could this have been. But between 94 and 2006, the FBI just stopped investigating because the CIA wasn't helping. Uh, all sorts of candidates were sort of churned up, but none of them fit. And, and it wasn't until 2005, 2006 that a Russian defector approached the CIA and said, hey, and they described the fourth man. And in, in, I don't know what the description was, but it was enough for the FBI to launch a 19-year investigation, which is still going on now. But Redmond retaliated against the members of the Special Investigative Unit and broke them up and sent one of the key people to where you were in uh, Central Asia, right, in the Caucasus, uh, as the head of the Central Eurasia Division. And that, of course... I, I was- yeah, I was head of South Group, which is it deals with countries that are much less significant than Russia, and it's, you know, the, uh, Central Asia, as you said, and the Caucasus. So this is the Lofgren calls me and said, "I'm going to." First, he said, "There's going to be three people who are going to come work in my group," and I said, "Sure, fine." And then he said, "By the way, they're going to be working on a special project, which you don't ask about." That's very strange for having subordinates working on something you know nothing about. I said, fine. You know, it's, it's, in those days, you didn't ask about Russia. You didn't ask about mole hunts. I mean, that would get you in trouble itself. So this this dear lady comes and works for me. This is Lane Bannerman, right? Lane Bannerman. L- Lane Bannerman. Yeah, she, had, she was head SIU until she was dismissed. She comes to work for me, and I notice she's working in an air-gapped computer. It's called a grid. Um, and when she meets the two other ladies... They, they're at, they, they beat outside, outside the building because they were worried that Langley's rooms were bugged. I didn't know what they were doing, and, and I just let it go. So I resigned from the CIA in December 97. Never hear word one about it until I'm out lunch with Lofgren. 
it's like four years ago. And he says, there was a fourth man. And why don't you see what you can do to dig this up? So Lane Bannerman and Diana Worthen, who was part of the Ames hunt, um, they sit down, they tell me what the evidence was. But what I have to do is, because it is, it's a deductive process, I have to consider the possibility, and the Russians are very good at this, that they framed Paul Redmond. So when he blows up in the meeting in 94, it could be he finally wakes up and says, hey, I'm being framed. The Russians are very good at this. I mean, Ian, we're talking about the wilderness of mirrors. It really does exist. And what the story is, if it were Redmond, that it truly is the spy, it's Tinker Taylor soldier spy. But George Smiley, rather than catching the mole, is the mole. Right, but uh, Redmond's either, as you point out in your book, the greatest traitor in the, in U.S. history or an ingenious KGB fabrication to lure the CIA into a witch hunt. But it doesn't make a lot of sense if Max Zaporisky was was a dangle, right? Because he gave up such important people, Ames and Hansen. So that doesn't make sense to me. Well... At some point by 1995, the Russians know that he's a, a CIA asset and he, he's cut off from access. But what he does is, is he identifies Nicholson. Uh, Nicholson is not considered a, a, you know, a great loss to the CIA, but he was a, a Russian spy. Mm-hmm. And the belief is that the Russians intentionally gave up, this is very complicated, sorry, uh, gave up Nicholson in order to protect the fourth man, give the FBI something to look for. I mean, this is a a very sophisticated game of chess. Um, And then we know by 1998 that that Max is completely compromised and he's exfiltrated because the British told us about him as well as three other Russian assets. All right. I exfiltrated Gordievsky. Yeah. yeah, well, Gordievsky was given up by the fourth man. I know there's all these books that maybe Ames gave him up or whatever, um, but there were three assets given up in 1984 by the fourth man, uh, and that's one of the anchors in this investigation. And of course, and that, it's, lots it's, of people, lots of valuable sources for the CIA were executed. So. What about the FBI people? You mentioned the, the three women that worked on the mole hunt. What about Jim Milburn, former FBI counterintelligence agents? And he's, he uh, is an important player in, in this whole story, isn't he? He's completely. I mean, he was, he was at the heart of the Ames investigation, the Howard investigation. He's an analyst. Um, he was one of the main drivers of the Hansen investigation, and more than anybody, uh, he he was the one that put Hansen in jail, his his FBI colleague. Um, uh, after the November confrontation, what happened was the three ladies, you know, work Saturday morning and go home. And the Monday morning they came in, and all their files have been seized. There's not a file in there, and it's like this locked room, you know, it's vaulted room. All their files just. And Milburn at that point sees the writing on the wall. So he takes the matrix, as it's called, with all the, the deep chronology with all the losses, rolls it up and takes it down to WFL, Washington Field Office, where it sits until today. But um, Redmond did apparently make a trip, an unauthorized, highly unorthodox trip on his own to Moscow in the mid 1980s. And when you talk to him, I take it he denied that. But Milburn believes told, it's total bullshit, right? He, he's got the goods. Well, well they've had these the defectors come out of Russia talk about this trip, several. Um, Redmond told me, and he's a very, very congenial man, by the way, to me. Um, right. He says, I, the, time, the timing's wrong. Yes, I know I'm under FBI investigation. Um, you know, it's just, it's just BS. And then he complained about the FBI's, you know, deciding they have a, uh, you know, a person of interest in going after him with a hatchet. 
Uh, I mean, there's a huge rivalry between the FBI and the CIA, which is just quite well known. So, and I said, I asked Redmond, so why is this investigation open until today? Why are they pursuing you? He's because they hate me. You know, I, Ian, this, this, what I've done here is a work of reporting what all the investigators say. I'm not in a position to sort out who's right and who's wrong. Um, I mean, right, but the, Redmond, the, the investigation was revived in 2006, and your book is surely going to put some impetus behind it. I mean, you got this one suspect that all the people in, in the know think it's him. So how, just in the last minute here, how, you, how are they going to resolve this? You can't, you, because they need a picture of whoever the fourth man is, putting down a dead drop, meeting with a Russian, um, any number of, of solid evidence that you'd have 100% uh, conviction. But the FBI, it's not because they don't care or they're lazy. It's just that they, they don't have those key pieces of information. They photographed Ames in Bogota going to a meeting, and they knew he was in Caracas with his, his handler, Kretkin. So all those, and, they, and then... Then with with Hanson, they found all sorts of documents and things like that, and and yeah, they um, caught him at a dead drop. Yeah, we don't have the complete story on. Yeah, they caught him at a dead drop above all, but we don't have the complete story on Hanson. So when you're playing with a master spy, and I and I emphasize that I don't make a conclusion who it is. I just write in my book what people tell me, the investigators. Right. But if well, you're really good, you can win this game. Well, this guy, whoever he is, has been really good. And I, I thank you for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Robert Baer, one of the most accomplished officers in CIA history and the best-selling author of who over several decades served everywhere from Iraq to New Delhi and was awarded the Career Intelligence Medal for his efforts. He's the author of four New York Times bestsellers, including his first book, See No Evil, the basis of the Academy Award-winning film Syriana, and he's considered one of the world's foremost authorities on the Middle East and is an intelligence and national security affairs analyst at CNN, and his latest book just out is The Fourth Man, The Hunt for a KGB Spy at the Top of the CIA and the Rise of Putin's Russia. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into how oil prices continue to rise as our so-called allies, the leaders of Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, MBS and MBZ, collude with Putin to turn American voters against Biden to bring back their criminal cohort, Donald Trump. I'm more important in the USA than a spy for the FBI. I'm trained to meet the criminal Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from the UK is Helen Thompson, Professor of Political Economy at Cambridge University, whose research concentrates on the political economy of energy and the long history of the democratic, economic, and geopolitical disruptions of the 21st century. She's the author of a number of books, including Oil and the Western Economic Crisis, China and the Mortgaging of America, and Might, Right, Prosperity and Consent, Representative Democracy and the International Economy. And she's a regular contributor to the podcast Talking Politics and has written articles for the London Review of Books, the New York Times and the Financial Times. And her latest book is Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century. Welcome to Background Briefing, Helen Thompson. It's a pleasure to be here, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And most people have been scratching their heads about what Putin was trying to do in Ukraine. Obviously, he was misled or over his intelligence and military people basically told him what he wanted to believe, that they could knock the country out in a couple of days. But the fact that he's still making, what, a billion dollars a day out of Europe and a billion dollars a day out of India and other oil markets as well, you could add them in. Since uh, the war in Ukraine began, the price of oil rose uh, one-third in the first two weeks after the invasion, and it continues to rise. So is there a subtext here that oil is a subtext to this war? 
that doesn't make a lot of sense? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there is a way maybe of looking at the war and saying that from a military point of view for Russia, it's obviously been pretty disastrous, um, and that in this sense, Putin committed a strategic, you know, blunder of some um, proportion, and clearly he overestimated. Um, Russian military power in the situation and the underestimated Ukrainian military power in the situation. If we look at it as an energy war in some respects, and I, I don't mean by that an energy war between Ukraine and Russia, but Russia relying on its energy power as part of its strategy in dealing with this war and making the assumption that serious energy sanctions wouldn't ensue and that even if that they did, that that would cause oil and gas prices in particular to rise sufficiently to compensate for the, the loss of export um, volume. I think we could say that the war is going, I, I don't want to go as far as saying really well from Putin's um, point of view, but at least quite well. And what we can see is that it's not been possible for Western countries to use energy sanctions um, to bring Putin to a halt uh, and to force him to reassess the, the situation and begin to um, retreat. And I would say as well that Russia's ability to blockade um, essentially Ukraine's access to the, the Black Sea and to stop Ukraine um, exporting food is in, in some sense a, another bit of armory in that non-military weapon the, the non-military weapons that Putin has but given that there appears to be a de facto alliance between Saudi Arabia the United Arab Emirates and uh, Russia in OPEC plus can you make the case that this combination of like fascist and feudal petro states are in effect declaring war on democracy and and we just haven't figured it out yet. As far as I can tell, the only person over here in the United States who's been talking about this is, is Representative Tom Malinowski, who's a former State Department official. He spoke recently at John McCain's Institute in Arizona, where he said Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates today are Russia's allies in the Persian Gulf by virtue of laundering Russian money and refusing categorically and deliberately to increase oil production. This is a moment where we need more countries to face a choice. Whose side are you on? Yeah, I'm not sure that I would cast it in terms of them on the Saudi and the United Arab Emirates side declaring war on democracy. I think what we can say, though, is that there has been no willingness um, by Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates um, as the, the two most significant in terms of spare capacity Arab producers in OPEC plus, either to increase their own output or by any significant volume or to break with Russia. So we're now nearly three months into this war and OPEC plus remains the same basic oil producing cartel that it was at the start um, of the um, war. And I think that what we can see from uh, particularly perhaps from Saudi Arabia's um, point of view is that Saudi Arabia, the Saudi leadership, sees no reason um, why it should accommodate um, the demands of Western countries to produce more oil. I think that partly reflects the the relatively poor relationship between the Saudi government and Joe Biden's um, administration. And I think it sort of beyond that reflects the fact that the oil producing cartel look after their own interests in, as oil producers, and that's their um, priority. And they've been, you know, like burnt in the past in some respects by being willing to um, control prices in ways that benefit American oil producers, benefit the American shale industry and saw the American shale industry free riding in some sense on OPEC plus in 2018-19. And I don't think they have any mindset of, of, um, of wanting to help now. And again, I'm speaking with Helen Thompson, Professor of Political Economy at Cambridge University, whose research concentrates on the political economy of energy and the long history of 
the democratic, economic and geopolitical disruptions of the 21st century. She's the author of a number of books, including Oil in the Western Economic Crisis, China and the Mortgaging of America, and Might, Right, Prosperity and Consent, Representative Democracy and the International Economy. And she's a regular contributor to the podcast Talking Politics and has written articles for the London Review of Books, the New York Times and the Financial Times. And her latest book is Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century. But it does seem that there's a sort of anti-democratic alliance or enablers or spoilers, whoever you want to describe them, where you've got Orban in Hungary, Erdogan in Turkey, and again, MBS and MBZ, particularly in the Gulf, laundering Russian money, as, as the Turks are doing, Israel as well, breaking sanctions. All of the Most of the super yachts of the oligarchs are parked in Turkish ports. So that's what I was sort of getting at here is that it does seem that, I mean, some people are arguing that the $2 billion that MBS gave to Jared Kushner was a down payment on bringing back Trump. And that's not entirely a fanciful idea, is it? That all this extraordinary amount of money that they make could be recycled back into US politics. No, I mean, I wouldn't, I mean, I I don't know anything about that in um particular but I, I think that you know we should understand that um, the Saudis have long played the game of like US um, politics so that's that would be uh, I wouldn't say it would be like par for the course but it shouldn't be something that should um, surprise us I think that obviously we can do what you're doing and say look you know let's look at the their regimes in question um, and they're all um, anti um, democratic or, or they've got strong authoritarian tendencies at least let's put it that way but if you take Hungary for instance it's clearly the case that Orban prior to the war started with some considerable sympathy um, with um, Putin and he has an authoritarian um, style um, as we know much less critical of Putin than um, the other the governments of the other um, former Warsaw Pact um, states but at the same time, Hungary has got a genuine energy problem because it's a landlocked country. It can't, um, without the cooperation of another country, um, and then engaging in really quite complex pipeline issues, start taking oil or gas um, by um, sea. So I think there is there is an element of authoritarianism versus democracy, but there's also an element that's simply about energy in its own terms and the constraints that um, energy um, generate for particular countries in the particular circumstances in which they find themselves in relation to energy production and consumption. But in terms of uh, the Middle East impacting U.S. elections, I mean, you can make the case that in many ways, obscure players in the Middle East have determined so much of American politics, going back to Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan, etc. I mean, you wrote about it in a uh, Helen in a piece uh, at the New Statesman. The 1990s promised a new era of peace, but it was an illusion from the start. I mean, it's not totally a reach to see analogies between Biden and Jimmy Carter in terms of being slammed with inflation and being sort of twisting in the wind because of uh, inability to control events in the Middle East. So is this a deja vu for you? Yeah, I mean, I think there's some really, there are some really like clear parallels um, between the the um, the situation that um, Biden faces now and the situation that um, Carter faced, and that you know Carter was being blown about by events in the Middle East, and he was being blown about by them at the same time as he was do, trying to do something quite serious where American energy policy was concerned, both in trying to Um, reassert America's energy independence, particularly in relation, obviously, um, to oil, but also trying to get Americans to take energy conservation um, seriously uh, and to engage with alternative energy um, questions. And it's very difficult for him to do that when he finds himself subject to events like the the hostage crisis and then the Iran-Iraq war that was sending oil prices soaring in the way in which that they did. And as we saw during the hostage crisis, it was incredibly difficult um, for him to influence what happened um, in Iran. And as we know, the hostage crisis then played a not insignificant part in the 1980 um, presidential election. I think what's interesting about 
the position in which you know like Biden finds himself in is that he wanted I think at the beginning of his presidency to say look where it comes to energy we're just concentrating on the energy transition I'm going to be a climate centric um, president and he wanted oil prices and the oil side of it to take care of itself and he, he actually hoped I think that the Iran nuclear deal resurrecting the Iran nuclear deal was the means by which um, to do that so there's a sort of clear around the importance of Iran for Biden and and the importance of Iran um, for um, Jimmy Carter and Biden found that um, or the administration found that it wasn't possible um, to get the Iran nuclear deal back quickly it might not be possible to get it back um, at all and without that he's left confronting the problem of high oil prices rising oil prices and that would have been true even before um, the war happened because you know oil prices had gone back of the 90 into the 90 dollar um, range before the um, 24th of February. So now Biden's left trying to persist with the energy transition quite rightly, but not being able to ignore the oil price problem and the way that that transmits into inflation. And that's something, as we know, that make politicians in any um, democracy pretty unpopular. Well, the sad thing about Biden and the sort of shattering of his programs and projects largely at the hands of his own caucus with two U.S. senators, Kirsten Sinema and, and Joe Manchin, basically thwarted his climate goals and his uh, ambition to change the sort of energy portfolio here in the United States. I mean, it's a bit of an irony that uh, Joe Manchin is the chair of the Senate Energy Committee and, and is in the, in the coal business himself. And he may well run as an independent um, in 2024, which would then split the Democratic vote. So it does seem that the whole idea of, well, as you point out in your article, it's not just high oil prices, it's a full-blown energy crisis, that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change warned in a report of April the 4th that too much investment is going into fossil fuels and too little into the energy transition that could prevent a devastating increase in global temperatures. Well, that's just gone out the window, hasn't it? The focus now is on, we need more oil, we need more oil, we have to tap into the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. It seems like that climate change is way now on the back burner. Yeah, I mean, the reality is, is that the world needs to deal simultaneously with its oil and gas problems, and it needs simultaneously, and it needs to deal with climate change, and the fact that it needs to deal with its oil and gas problems, and the fallout of those oil and gas problems um, for food, um, doesn't mean that climate change goes um, away. And I think that the the danger has been um, that we think about these questions in like binary terms. Either we're serious about uh, climate crisis or we're serious um, about fossil fuel um, energy um, issues and thinking that more investments needed in oil and um, gas. Uh, and in some sense, you demonstrate in this binary, your credibility about one or the other by negating the importance of the other problem. And I, I, I think that's really a, a really problematic way to think about where we are. We need to be able to think about energy issues across the board. We need to be able to think about everything at the same time. And we need to think about the different timescales um, that we're, we're grappling um, with um, here. We do have to deal with the, the present tense problems around um, oil and gas and for some countries coal um, as well and we have to do that not least because of the food consequences of the position that we're um, now in but we can't do it in ways that mean that we take our eyes off the ball um, the climate change and um, problem and the need for the energy um, transition and I think that that that's the problem that's the central in some sense, the central political problem that everybody faces now, all governments faces, is how to deal with everything at the same time and uh, and work out uh, a way in which the energy transition um, can proceed whilst we get to grips with the present tense problems that oil and gas are causing us. Well, is there any indication that any country is on top of this? I mean... Already we're having countries default like Sri Lanka. In fact, I think, was it yesterday that Sri Lanka ran out of gasoline? So my assumption is that the OPEC plus the Saudis and Emiratis and Russia and et cetera, they want to sell as much oil as they can at the highest price they can for as long as they can. So what is the possibility of 
of a countervailing program. I mean, the logical thing here in the United States would be to increase the tax on gasoline and invest that in alternatives, but that's a political non-starter. Has anybody come up with a, a solution here? It seems that the Germans at least are trying. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that the the Chinese are very cognizant of the way in which of doing what I just described in a way of, of, of trying to or seeing the necessity of thinking across the board. I mean that they have a, a particular set of energy difficulties and they have a, a very high level of geopolitical worry about their foreign energy um, dependency. I think where um, Germany's concerned, I think we can already see the, the difficulties that the timescale issue poses because on the one hand, they want alternative supplies of liquid, or well, they want supplies of liquid natural gas, given they haven't had liquid natural gas before. Um, and they look to country like Qatar to, to sign contracts with to provide it. But because the Germans are serious about the energy um, transition and moving away from gas, they'd like that gas, let's say, for eight to 10 years. But Qatar would like to sign contracts to provide um, liquid natural gas for 20 um, years. And these are the kind of questions I think that, that the European countries in particular um, have got to face, given the timescale that they have um, for moving away from gas and the difficulty that a country like Germany has in starting where liquid natural gas is concerned from no base whatsoever. I mean, I think that the other thing that we need to bear in mind when we think about the OPEC plus side of um, things is it's reasonably clear, I think, that the Saudis and the United Arab Emirates could increase their um, production. But it's far from clear that many other OPEC plus producers leaving Russia out of it um, can um, do so. I mean, obviously, an um, Iran nuclear deal would change things where Iran was concerned. But I think we can see that quite a number of the oil producing countries have actually got their own productive capacity problems. And in some sense, that I think is a part of the story of what's going on in terms of OPEC plus's um, unwillingness simply to say, OK, we're going to make a significant increase in, in our um, production um, quotas. The other question, obviously, is is how much capacity the U.S. shale industry, the U.S. Um, shale oil producers have to produce more oil. It looks to me like that would be true. It would be it would be true that the Permian Basin uh, has that capacity, um, but probably perhaps the others um, don't to any significant degree. Anyway, but I think that in a way is the question for the, the US is, is, is there a way of getting some more out of the shale oil boom in the short term um, without that becoming uh, a commitment to um, much greater uh, investment in oil and gas over the medium term, which is obviously not something where Biden um, wants to go. But it is a question right now of how do we get through this? How do we get through? Well, in some sense, how do we get through the immediate months? Particularly given, as you say, uh, Ian, the situation in a country like um, Sri Lanka uh, at the moment, which is sound from the way in which the new prime minister was tweeting about it yesterday, you know, near apocalyptic. And again, we're continuing the conversation with Helen Thompson, who joins us from the UK. She's a professor of political economy at Cambridge University, whose research concentrates on the political economy of energy and the long history of the democratic, economic, and geopolitical disruptions of the 21st century. And she's the author of a number of books, including Oil and the Western Economic Crisis, China and the Mortgaging of America, and Might, Right, Prosperity and Consent, Representing Democracy and the International Economy. And her latest book is Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century. Well, in the case of Germany, of course, they, they have been dependent upon Russian gas and, and Europe is now trying to get off Russian oil, albeit with the problem they have with Hungary being the spoiler there. But nevertheless, it does seem that the Germans are doing are doing all they can to find alternatives to Russian gas. But LNG terminals take, what, a couple of years to build at least. Nuclear takes 10 years plus to build and the Germans have shut down most of their nuclear plants. What about wind? That doesn't take that long to put up wind farms. Is that an option that should be explored? I mean, again, trying to get a win-win out of this instead of it being mutually exclusive between old energy and new energy. 
Well, I think that you know the Germans have a quite high um, proportion um, by comparative standard of electricity that is generated um, by wind, and I think that it wouldn't be at all surprising um, if there's you know a further push for more investment uh, in wind uh, in Germany, particularly given it's clear that a government in Germany which includes, as it does, obviously, the Green Party is not going to return to the question um, of um, nuclear power. I think, though, if you go back to last autumn and the difficulties that some European countries, including um, Germany and the United Kingdom, were having when China's gas demand was pushing the the price of um, gas up quite um, considerably, The contributing factor for the European countries, particularly the North European countries, was the fact that the wind wasn't really blowing very much compared to what it usually does at that um, time of year in um, northern Europe. So in the in the UK, which is obviously a country, as I know from living here, that's pretty propitious where the wind um, is concerned in terms of how much it blows, then uh, the amount of gas that was being used to generate electricity on many days last autumn was was pretty high in comparison to um, wind. So, and unless and until that there's a significant technological breakthrough on storage um, for wind and solar, wind and solar have still got to grapple with the intermittency um, problem. So in some circumstances, in some weather circumstances, I mean um, by that, then wind can um, take uh, quite a lot of the, the strain, but on, you know, on other days that it that it can't. And I think that that puts what happens next autumn and winter um, in Europe, you know, into the into the sort of the realm of fortune, so to speak. Well, what other means are there then? I mean, how quickly can electric cars become the standard? Certainly, there's quite a few of them over here, but they tend to be more expensive for the average customer. So, I mean, I'm just trying to get a sense of, obviously, this war in Ukraine creates this enormous paradox where NATO and because the pipelines cross Ukraine, uh, the victims of Putin's aggression are financing his aggression. And that's a peculiar situation, to say the least. So what else do you see on the horizon in terms of making the transition in spite of the uh, energy demands of the moment? Well, I think you know there are some questions coming up about uh, electric vehicles uh, in terms of their cost and whether governments are really going to be willing to subsidise for the short to, to medium term um, the switch for people who wouldn't otherwise be able to afford uh, electric electric um, vehicles. I think that is a question, the question of whether there can be mass electric vehicle use, ownership that has hung over electric vehicles um, for the, the last few years and will have to be faced um, at some point and whether it will be possible to have um, mass use without uh, a pretty strong um, subsidy regime um, for that. I think where you can say that there are possibilities um, for maybe more rapid change that don't run into the at least direct subsidy uh, issue would be on heating um, and really a big push by governments uh, on insulation and on moving to heat pumps for household heating and if you look at the promises made by a number of European governments, this was supposed to be going to happen where heat pumps were concerned, you know, within the next five to six years, I think it's in Britain, so I think it's or maybe a bit longer, by 2030 anyway. Then the question becomes, well, is this a moment when actually uh, the, the, the drive for heat pumps instead of gas uh, in household e- heating um, has to be um, speeded up? And I think the answer to that is almost certainly yes. Um, and then I think that in practice, particularly when we're looking at like next winter, autumn and winter, we are going to see um, de facto uh, or either uh, we, we're going to see reduced energy consumption. Either it's going to come because actually the economic pressures are going to be such that demand for energy will be destroyed and the economies will push over into um, recession um, or we're going to be 
thinking about um, some forms of energy rationing, particularly perhaps in Europe. And I, I can see that in terms of the political, the politics of that in the United States, I think that still looks unthinkable. I'm not sure it's so unthinkable come winter in Europe, particularly if the war is still going on at that point. So, Helen Thompson, just in the last couple of minutes, uh, let's touch on your new book, Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century, and the, the extent to which the intersection of oil, money, and democracy is very much roiling the planet at the moment. So we've sort of attempted some kind of <laughs> exploration of utopian ideas, or even tangible ideas, but let's talk about the dystopian realities. It's, do you see things really getting a lot worse? Because we not only have an energy crisis in terms of the price of oil skyrocketing, and we also have the price of food skyrocketing because of the war in Ukraine as well, where the breadbasket of the world is now being sort of landlocked. So do you think that we are in for a rough ride in the next few years, if, or if not longer? I do think that we're in uh, in for a, a rough ride. Um I think that in any circumstances um, that the energy transition combined with the problems around fossil fuel energies in their own terms, including the fact that the oil producing cartel is composed of the countries that we were talking about um, earlier, was going to make things pretty difficult. Um, if you throw into that the fact that the world's in some sense, deepest supplier of hydrocarbons and um, straddles both Europe and Asia uh, as the Eurasian power uh, in that sense has made a major strategic um, blunder that has upended its long term energy relationship with Europe and the political relationship that has gone with that, at least since the 1970s, I would say, in some ways, from the detente period from Germany's point of view, that is a pretty seismic thing to have happened in what were already very difficult circumstances. So I finished my book in the summer of um, 2021. The book came out, was published in the UK anyway, on the day of the invasion on the 24th of February. And obviously, you know, I was presenting some quite pessimistic um, conclusions about what the future um, was going to be like. But I think the, the world changed profoundly then on that day my book came out. And um, in some sense, I don't mean to say that the, the, the story that I've told is redundant. I don't think that um, at all. But there's a whole new story that's begun because of what Russia has done and because of the kind of country that um, Russia is and what it means for a country like Russia, the st a state like Russia, to have made this kind of blunder. Um, and in that sense, um, we live now in an even more difficult world than the one I thought I was describing when I finished the book last summer. Well, Helen Thompson, I thank you so much for joining us here today. It's been a pleasure, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Helen Thompson, who's a professor of political economy at Cambridge University, whose research concentrates on the political economy of energy and the long history of the democratic, economic and geopolitical disruptions of the 21st century. She's the author of a number of books, including Oil and the Western Economic Crisis, China and the Mortgaging of America, and Might, Right, Prosperity and Consent, Representative Democracy and the International Economy. She's a regular contributor to the podcast Talking Politics and has written articles for the London Review of Books, The New York Times and The Financial Times. And her latest book is Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century. And she joined us from the UK. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. 
Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America My quiet voice was saying something to me An angel song about the home of the grave in this land One more light goes out in the middle.